I think a little bit of what I've been getting so far out of the sermonettes and sermons uh, yesterday and today is that we aren't a great and a mighty people, uh, but I'm reminded of Zechariah 4, which says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. That was directed at Zerubbabel, but certainly it's directed at those who might be a part someday of the work that Zerubbabel has to do when he shows up. So uh, I think we all have to come recognizing that anything that is done has to be done by the power and the Spirit of God. And this day is uh, a fulcrum in understanding where the power comes from. On that day in Acts 2, that the New Testament church actually started, great power was given, and a work began. That work was in line with what Christ had taught his disciples. Remember at the end of Matthew 28, he had told them to go out and to preach the gospel to all peoples and to make disciples of all nations. And that was a work that actually began at Pentecost. Peter preached a very powerful sermon that day, moved by the Spirit of God, and thousands of people actually repented, changed their lives, and were baptized. That happened on successive days there for two or three or four days. There were tremendous healings that occurred because the Spirit and the power of God was given in a deeply, widely manifest manner. Now that lasted for a little while, and then life went back somewhat to normal. There were not thousands of people being uh, baptized day by day. In fact, healings began to tail off. Uh, God, once he began to build the New Testament church, allowed people to go through trials, troubles, tribulations, sicknesses, illnesses, even death. There was martyrdom. There were all kinds of problems, if you'll read through uh, Acts, through Revelation, in the church. Uh, many sins. New churches raised up and people brought their sins with them and they had to be addressed. People had to be corrected. Uh, there was a lot of preaching and teaching that went on. A lot of counseling had to occur. Life did not suddenly become easy. Now, we look forward to the time because we realize that Acts 2 was written more from the, from the setting of the day of the Lord at the end in uh, Joel 2 than it was even for the time Peter spoke of. But he saw things happening that were very similar to what he had read in Joel 2. And he, of course, at that time thought that Christ's return was very imminent and it would, return, would happen during his lifetime. He just didn't realize that we would be sitting here 2,000 years later expecting Christ to return fairly soon now and within the lifetime of most of us. And most of us are getting older. So it is imminent now. But what I want to address today, as they had to address in Acts 2, after they had sat and waited in Jerusalem for 50 days, what is the work today? What about the here and now? What is he, Christ, doing today? And what does he want us doing? 
Remember that without vision, the people perish. We need to have an understanding of what is head, so that, ahead so that we can see what needs to be done and be encouraged and inspired, empowered to do what needs to be done. To be sure that what we are doing fits within the will of God. Let's go back for a moment with a brief look at history. Do you remember the fellow named Noah? He was a preacher of righteousness. But there was a specific work that needed to be done in his day. Now, he preached and taught, but he also had another job, not just a job to feed his face, but a job that God gave him directly. He told him, I want you to spend some time building an ark. I don't know whether he told him at the time that it would take him 120 years or not. But he became a boat builder, and that was God's work during Noah's day. Now, that ark did a lot of things. It made him look like a fool, and it made him look like God could not possibly be with him, even though he was teaching God's way, because why would any idiot build a boat that big and in a place where he couldn't float it? And he may have been likened to the fellow who built a nice big boat in his garage and once he got it done realized he couldn't get it out the door. It looked like a silly thing to be doing. But at the same time, it was a witness for all those years against those people who would not listen to what was, at what was being preached. So God had Noah do that, but that project fit within the purpose of God. Now, God, when he created Adam and Eve, had a plan of creating human beings and making them into God someday. We understand the mystery of the ages to that degree. And God knew that he was going to drown the inhabitants of the earth, and he wanted that ark there as a witness all that time, as it started out, as it became closer and closer to being completed, till the time that Noah went in, the animals went in, and the doors were shut. And then it was too late. So God had a plan and a purpose there that fit within the overall plan of someday making those people into God. Now, they're going to be resurrected and have opportunity in the future. So everything God does has a purpose in laying out and accomplishing making us into God someday. There is nothing on this earth that God directs to be done that does not have a part in that purpose and plan. Moses was a prophet of God, wrote some of the books of the Bible, but he also had a physical job, that is, get all these millions of Israelites out of Egypt, get them across the Red Sea somehow, how are you going to do it, Moses, and then take them to the Promised Land, 
And he had all kinds of problems along the way. He had to have help getting them across the Red Sea. Well, he had to have help getting them out of Egypt. Tremendous miracles that God did. But that wandering in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of murmuring and griping and complaining is there as a memorial for us today. The Ark of God is a memorial for us today. I mean the Ark of Noah that God had built. But you better obey God or you'll be swallowed up. You better not murmur, gripe, and complain or you'll die in the wilderness. Joshua believed God's ways, lived God's ways, preached God's ways. His job, physically, was to settle Israel in the land, probably around us here today. Well, that was a big job. Had a lot of people to fight and conquer in order to accomplish it. Had to have God's help. And those people at Jericho feared God because they had seen and heard what happened with Egypt and the Red Sea and what had happened at the Jordan River just as Israel came across and their first target was Jericho. So God had a plan and a purpose there all along. What was Christ's own work? I want to examine that briefly before we get down to the end time work and our part in it and how we need to be acting and reacting at this time. Let's go first of all to John 4. And here I want to go down uh, to verse 34. Emmanuel said to them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He clearly understood his purpose on this earth. To understand the will of God and to finish his work. And what he did here as a human being was a very, very important job in the ultimate finishing of the work of God. He had to live an exemplary life, never sin, while he was on the earth, and then give himself for us to die. He had to train people to talk about God's purpose after he died. So he had several things that had to be accomplished while he was here on the earth. Chapter 6, verse 38. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. His job was to save mankind, to raise them up in a resurrection at the last day. Now, there are several resurrections, we understand, but the mystery of God will be finished at the first resurrection. Then we will understand fully what he means by turning us into God. And that plan and purpose will then go forward for the people in the millennium and those in the great white throne judgment. And the last day could mean here even possibly the last great day in which all these people that he was preaching to then would be resurrected. 
And he even said to his father there in John 15, 16, somewhere right in there, that he'd accomplished his purpose and he hadn't lost any except Judas, and that was pre-planned. But I think that right here in John 6, he may even be including Judas. Judas was never converted, I don't think. He was never baptized, never received God's Holy Spirit. He probably will be in the last great day and have an opportunity of salvation even yet. There is nothing that says he was condemned forevermore, only that he died physically and was lost as a disciple or as an apostle to do the phase of the work that was going on then. Now, there are people who are hung up on the idea that the only job to do is to preach the gospel around the world, and then the end will come. And they do not allow within their thinking the opportunity that there may be a wide panoply of jobs that need to be accomplished here in the end. There may be specific jobs that have to be done. And just preaching the gospel, or you go to work and make money and send, me, send it to me so that I can preach the gospel, I think that's all that needs to be done. Now, God has never worked that way. We've already seen examples of that. But, yeah, preaching needed to be done, but there were other jobs that had to be done on the side for specific reasons. Uh, chapter 9 here of, of John, verse 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Now, that was a far-reaching prophecy. And it includes today, because the night is almost upon us when no man really can work. And a lot of people who are out trying to preach the gospel are going to find their funds cut off, and they won't be able to do what they think they need to do. <clears throat> but do they see the whole picture? Chapter 17 Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify you, me, with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was finished. Or before the world was, excuse me. <coughs> I would love someday to be able to stand before God and say, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Wouldn't that be a good feeling for all of us? To be able to say that. Now, to be able to do that, however, we need to understand very clearly what work we are called to do. So that we can do it and can stand Someday. Now, there are a lot of people who say, well, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? And Christ talked about it. And he says, yeah, but you didn't do this and this and this. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, those people honestly thought they were doing the will of God. They thought they were doing the work he wanted done. What about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Essenes in Christ's day? They looked at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They 
talked to Christ as if they knew exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it, and they thought, sincerely thought, that they were doing the will of God and doing his work. And it was shocking when he told them, you're of your father the devil. They couldn't comprehend that. You know, you can be very deeply sincere and be wrong. It is highly possible, and it is even likely, because most people on this earth have been wrong in what they believed and what they did that have ever lived from Adam until today. And I submit to you, the most in the church of God today do not understand the work that has to be done here at the end. And they are very sincerely applying themselves, working hard, a lot of them, at doing something that God doesn't even want done right now. Isn't that scary? To think you're doing the will of God, to go in and pray on your knees, help us get the work done today, and they don't even know what God's work is today. How can they accomplish God's will if they don't know what it is? It is deeply important that we understand the will of God, what his purpose is at any given time, and especially for us, because we're alive now, to know what God wants us to do so that we can know how to go about it and accomplish it. If we don't know that, we're in trouble. Did you ever see anybody doing something and it was obvious they didn't know what they were doing? Sure you have. You've seen me around here for years now. We need to know what we're doing. But we've been called on to do a lot of things here in developing this community that we didn't really know how to do. We just found a way to get it done because we knew it must be done. Now, there may be people in the church of God who could have done a much better job of it than we have. Highly possible who had the skill and the training along these lines. But we did it because we understood it. We understood it needed to be done, right? Now, most of the people in the church today don't understand what we're doing out here. And they think it's ridiculous. They look upon us just about the way the people looked at Noah. Fools. Idiots. And we look at what they're doing and see them spinning their wheels, trying to call and convert and baptize people, and accomplishing almost nothing, despite all the magazines and booklets and broadcasts that go out. And we see a study in futility. 
Have they looked up and looked around and said, how much are we accomplishing? Are we getting anything done? Is God helping? I remember a sermon given in 1992 by John Reitenbaugh. His first sermon in Church of the Great God when it first formed. Do you see God in your life? And I've quoted from that, or quoted that title, several times over the years, and I feel it is pertinent to do it again today. Do you, today, hearing this, whether seated here or in front of a telephone, see God in your life? Now, God called us, did he not, to do his will? Didn't he say if that we would do his will, that he would bless us and help us to accomplish it? If you ask anything in my will, or according to my will, we need to know what his purpose is. We had better see God in what we are doing. If we can't find and see God in it, we might as well quit and go do something else. Now, I'm going to say some things today that would make me, by the time I'm done, look a whole lot more like Noah. That's okay. I don't care. I believe we have a work to do, and I believe God has called us to do it, and we must get it done. Because our eternal judgment and our opportunity to help with the work of God is based upon accomplishing whatever it is that God shows us we need to do. And we'd better see God in it. The work at the end of the age must fit Christ's work. What did God give him to do, the Father? He gave him the job of creating mankind and creating God from man. That, in a nutshell, is the job. Now, that covers several thousands of years. It covers lots of ups and downs, lots of ups and downs in human history. And it includes some very dramatic, hair-raising events right here at the end of the age. The work at the end must fit his purposes. He has to culminate this somehow. He has to wrap it all up. He has to finish it. Now, what we saw in Acts 2 was the beginning of it, or at least of the New Testament aspect of it. And now we are at the end of that New Testament work, and it needs to be understood that there are specific jobs that have to be done to wrap this up, to finish it. You cannot go ahead preaching the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end will come during the millennium, can you? You can't do it during the great white throne judgment. The end of this age will have already come. 
Some people can only see, I must preach the gospel, and they think they have to do that interminably. Forevermore. Is there any respite from that? Is there any other job that has to be done in addition to that? Is there anything that must be done to finish it up so that it isn't done anymore and the end can come? The Christ commissioned those men to preach to the world, but he himself did not do it. It wasn't part of his job. When people came around, he taught them, but his primary job was to teach his disciples his Father's way and to commission them then to go out to all the earth. Now, he may have traveled around the earth. I think that's probably true. But it was not always his desire to preach the gospel and convert people. If it was, he did a very lousy job of it. Because not one person that he preached to was converted during his lifetime. Not one. Some were converted later were given God's Spirit on Pentecost after he had died and ascended to heaven. So that wasn't a part of the specific job he had while he was here. We need to understand that God gives specific assignments, and sometimes they don't always follow the mold of of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Sometimes they take a different twist. Let's understand the end-time work. We are here to be involved in it. God called us out of this world through Herbert Armstrong. And his was the first major phase of wrapping up the plan. God had decreed there would be 144,000 who would become the bride of Christ. And a few of those came from the Old Testament... Many came from the early New Testament church and perhaps through the Middle Ages, but a vast number of them have to come from the very end time work. So God called many, and he used Herbert Armstrong as the instrument to do that. And out of those many that were called, we have many who fell in the rocks, many who fell on bad ground, many that fell in the thorns, We have some who are still enduring. We have some who are still thriving and growing. We have others just sitting around basically wondering what's going on. So there are all different kinds right now and all different scenarios for those who were called in the worldwide church of God and who have been called since, a few but not many. Where are we in that? But to wrap this up, God needed a bunch of people called so that he could then choose out of those enough to finish up the 144,000 so that there would be that exact number when Christ returns to pick up his bride and whisk her off for a year's honeymoon before he comes back for the day of the Lord, or during that, after the day of the Lord, that year after the tribulation. So finishing that up is very, very important. 
Now, if you're spending all your time out there preaching the gospel, trying to get more converts, how are you going to accomplish finishing up the bride? Getting her number right and getting her prepared. See, there's, there's already a different job that needs to be done. Now, I have to see God in my life. And you have to see God in your life. Now, I want to explain some things today, and we've touched on these off and on here and there. And I've not emphasized them because I don't want to take any credit or seem to be more than I am or to claim something that I'm not. At the same time, understanding that my hand has done nothing and that I am a very weak, feeble, human, very human being, I do see that God has done some things, shown some things, and given some instruction that needs to be followed. So he gets credit for that. I don't, you don't. If we can be tools however inept in God's hands, to be used to fulfill his purposes well and good. And he has called that kind. We've heard that quite a bit in the last two days already. He hasn't called any of us who were important, who were particularly smart or particularly talented or anything else. Hopefully, we can be yielded. That's all that really matters, is to yield to what he needs done. See, he looked for that in Noah. Here was a man who was struggling to obey God in a society gone very far south. That sounds bad for Southerners. But down the tubes, maybe we should say. And God told him, Noah, the most important thing that could be done right now is to build a boat. Oh, yeah? Build a boat. All these sinners out here that need preached to, and you want me to build a boat. <laughs> Make that a yacht, maybe. That was a big boat. Now, if Noah had not been yielded, he'd have said, nah, I don't think so. But he was yielded to God. He said, all right, you want a boat built? We'll build a boat. Let's get started. God knew that before he approached Noah. Those people were instructed in the wilderness to build a tabernacle for God. And they were just slaves that had been hauling bricks back and forth. They didn't know anything about building a tabernacle. Now what did God do? He gave the craftsmen skill to work with metal, to work with gold and silver and wood. Skills that they did not have. But he augmented what was there by his power, by his spirit, by his ability to get a job done. And he told Zerubbabel, as I've already said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So anything that has to be done here at the end has to be done by the spirit of God. 
And the Spirit of God is only going to be in something that is according to the will of God, right? If it's not according to God's will, he won't be there and he won't help it. And whatever your objective is, it won't happen. If you're trying to preach the gospel in a time when God is not blessing that effort, nothing will happen. So we must look around, study the scripture carefully, and find out what does God want done right now. We have plenty of examples in the church of those trying to preach the gospel to the world and convert people and baptize them, and very, very little is being accomplished. Now, when Herbert Armstrong was preaching the same message, people were coming in by the tens of thousands because God was behind it. It wasn't because of what Herbert Armstrong was a good speaker. Sometimes he bored me to tears, frankly. I could barely stay awake and sometimes didn't. Same old thing over and over and over again. And you hear me say some of the same things over and over again too. But hopefully they're important things. And what he saw needed saw that needed to be done at that time. That was lousy English. What he saw, I can't even say it. Uh, he saw what needed to be done at that time. And he focused on it. And he worked at it and worked at it and worked at it. And other people got him going off to see kings and rulers and paid his way and convinced him that that was the way the gospel needed to be preached, and it really wasn't. But that radio and TV and plain truth going out did call many, many thousands of people. And it worked. I was out there working in the ministry, building churches during that time when it was growing like crazy. And you couldn't keep up with it. There were so many people calling and writing. Because God was there. Now, if people are doing the same thing and nothing is being accomplished, I have to ask the question, is God there? Now, I want to lay it on the line today. And I want us to answer the question, is God here? I look at the futility of many organizations today trying to do a job they think needs to be done and not accomplishing much, and I have to ask, is God there? But if I can look at them and ask, is God there?, then it is only fair to turn it around and say, is God here? He has to be somewhere. Are we ready to face the question? Do we need to change direction and do something different than what we've been doing? What will it take to accomplish? How do we measure whether God is here or not? If you're trying to convert and baptize people, then don't you have to measure it by how many people are 
coming in and being baptized? You go by the fruits, don't you? If we'll put their feet to the test on that, then we have to have our feet put to the test as well. So let's examine what has been done so far and see what if that has been correct and if so, what needs to be done next and if that is the correct course. This has something to do with some dreams and a vision. And I know there are great warnings in Ezekiel about those who come and say, well, I've dreamed dreams and I've had this vision, blah, blah, blah. And There's always opportunity for Satan to be involved. And they said, you have to look at it and see if it came from God. A, does it fit Scripture? B, are the fruits there? Did it happen? He says, if somebody comes and says, I dreamed a dream and this is going to happen and it doesn't, then don't pay attention to that dreamer of dreams. So, I dreamed some very powerful, very clear dreams over the last few years. And I've told most of you at one time or another about them, and I don't think there's many out there on the phone line that haven't heard at least some of it. But I think we should go back, and I think we should examine those and see if they came from God indeed or not. Were they just as a result of bad taco sauce or Satan, or did they come from God? So let's do it. I'm in a way loath to do this because I don't want light shined on me. But if these are of God, then they are of God, and they have nothing to do with me anyway. If they were revealing from God something a dumb human being could not have figured out on his own, then we have to give God credit and would want to. So did they come from God? About 1994, I was on a project out in the Nevada and Arizona desert, and had a little housing project down here in Beaver Dam below St. George, the Arizona side. And uh, it was not going real well. But sometime in 94, I didn't keep a diary or anything or a journal of it, but I was waking up one morning and uh, had this very powerful dream or vision, I'm not sure which you would call it because I was in the process of waking up or it woke me up, but the perception was very clear that God wanted a place prepared for his people and that it was nearby, that it would be a place where God's people would be protected during the end time events and that I was to go about helping prepare it. And it scared me. I almost trembled and shook all over. I thought, who, me? Who am I? I'm nothing. I'm just out here trying to get this housing development to work somehow. You mean me? 
Now, there has to be a place prepared, and it needs to be near here. And there was a fellow at that time that was wanting to do a big development around on the other side of the Grand Canyon on the south rim, had a bunch of land under contract, and he wanted us to trade out mobile homes. I don't know where we were going to get them, but he wanted to trade it out. So I thought, well, maybe God has something there. So I jumped in the truck, headed down to Vegas and around through Kingman and up to the south rim to look at his project. Nothing happened. Well, that project was not going real well, so that winter uh, I packed up and headed back for Alaska. Now, it was quite interesting in retrospect that during that time I had started attending with uh, Church of the Great God soon after it started in 92. I think it was spring of 92 that I started going down to Anaheim once in a while to meet with the people there. And... Uh, I did not want to be in the ministry anymore. I'd been there for 17 years, and I'd been out for, what, about 10 or so, I guess, or 12, I guess it was. And I did not want to start preaching again. They were putting pressure on me to start giving sermonettes down there in Anaheim when I'd show up. I said, no, I don't want to give sermonettes. I'm done preaching. I've had enough of that in my life. Thank you. Uh, I prefer hunting moose and flying airplanes and and, uh, fishing and uh, building houses. It was a lot easier life and a lot more fun for me. So I resisted. And some weekends I would come up into the mountains somewhere out of Beaver Dam to spend the Sabbath to get away from the development and away from potential customers that might show up. So once in a while I'd come up here to Zion National Park. Beautiful place. And I would enjoy the Sabbath there. Boy, this is a beautiful part of God's creation. But it never occurred to me in any way that that could be an important part of what God might need done here at the end. Never crossed my mind on quite a few visits. That's how smart I am. God says there needs to be a place prepared. needs to be near here. I never put the story together at all. So let's understand how smart I am. But let's understand if God is working. Now, that dream did not reveal where, just near. I went on back to Alaska, spent the winter there, and uh, kind of put it on the back burner. I guess I kind of forgot about it in a way. I, it crossed my mind. I wondered what in the world it meant and how it would come about, but uh, kind of put it on the back burner. Then they convinced me in the meantime to start giving sermonettes, and I gave my first sermon on CGG at the feast in 1993, and uh, began to get more involved. Well, at some point there, as a couple of years went, a year or so went by, this is 94 to 96, the feast in 95, John was looking for someone to work in the office to help him out in the ministry full-time, and uh, I was sitting at that board meeting because I was on the board of directors at the time, thinking, ooh. And then I began to feel guilty. So I said, I suppose I could come to North Carolina if you really need somebody. And I don't like the Southeast anyhow. So we talked at lunch that day, and uh, he hired me. So we went back to Alaska after the feast, 
And uh, for some reason, I felt I really needed to get down there by the turn of the year. I wanted to go to work on the 1st of January. He hadn't set a time, but that just sort of what stuck in my mind. So I went back and hastened around trying to get ready to go. I drove the truck down to North Carolina. I left Marla up in Alaska at the time just to get started. And we planned to go back and move her up uh, or down there. Oh, it turned out to be July of 96. So I did. I managed to get down there, showed up for work on the 1st of January, 1996. And within two weeks of that, had a very uh, powerful, very clear dream. And it had to do with the two witnesses and the job that they had to do at the end time. And the perception was that I was to be a part of preparing for that work. And it was scary. Now, I remembered that I'd had a conversation with Herbert Armstrong in 1981, wherein he told me that he was Zerubbabel. So I had gone home to Montana at the time and gone through the book of Haggai and Zechariah to read that story and then preached a sermon showing that Herbert Armstrong was building the latter temple and he was Zerubbabel and that probably his son was Joshua. And GTA had all kinds of problems. So that was the take that was in my mind. So I began a very serious study. I mean, immediately. I told two or three people around there about it. And began to study the book of Haggai, of building the temple, and of Zechariah 1 through 6, and the job that the witnesses have to do at the end. And I began to understand that it was a lot bigger job than we'd been taught in the church, and there was a lot more to it than that. That there were 70 years, and that 70 years would come and go, and then God's people would be released to get away from Babylon and go do or begin to do a work or prepare to do a work that was to come. And that, lo and behold, Revelation 11 told the two witnesses not to go to the world, but to measure the temple and the altar, the people and the ministry, and leave out the court of the Gentiles. Don't go to the world, at least not at first. They had a job to do with the church. And then when you put that together with Zechariah 3 and 4, they were before the seven candlesticks, which represented the churches, as shown in Revelation 1 and 2 and that they had to feed all seven of the churches. That means all seven have to be extant here at the end. So before they ever began to go preach to the world, we had to go out and build villages without walls where there would be much men and cattle, Zechariah 2. We had to get out of the cities and go dwell in the wilderness, Micah 4. We had to gather ourselves before the financial crash of Zephaniah 1 came upon the nation. So we looked at those scriptures and says, well, this has to be done. We began to understand that the work was a much bigger work and there were specific jobs that had to be done. Not just preach the gospel to the world as a witness. In fact, we began to understand that Matthew 28, 19, 20 was Herbert Armstrong's job. 
and that the real job of the two witnesses was Matthew 24:14, when they finally got to preaching the gospel to the world as a witness against them, and then the end would come. Herbert Armstrong finished preaching and died. Now, 20-some years later, the end hasn't come. And the tribulation hasn't come. And the two witnesses have not preached. Now, he was a minor type of Zerubbabel, and his son may have been of Joshua, because they did build a temple here at the end time. But we began to realize from the Scripture that that was the former temple, that all of Haggai and Zechariah have to do with the end time temples, and that his temple now has been taken down and destroyed, and it must be rebuilt by those who are in the end time work. The temple must be rebuilt but it must be rebuilt better. And we understood that partly because it says there in Haggai 2 that old men would be around who saw the first one and would also witness the last one. So it had to be something that is all here at the end time. We did a lot of studying, went all through the scriptures, began to realize that all the prophecies had to do first with the church and then physical Israel that the church would come apart and then physical Israel would come apart. What has happened? Well, at that time, the church was coming apart. That's pretty well a done deal now, isn't it? And now, you and I are looking at the death throes of this nation as it has begun to come apart big time. And it's going to snowball now downhill. Okay. I gave a sermon, I think it was in March there, about the work of the two witnesses because I began to see what kind of a job they would have to do. Went to Chicago for Passover that year, 96. And as I was working on the sermon, I got a little sleepy, took a nap, started to wake up. And I would call this, I think, a vision because I was waking up. It wasn't just a dream. But it was like I was in a movie theater and there were two screens. There were two maps. Here was a map of the Middle East. Here was a map of Utah, of all places. Now, nobody had said anywhere, all we've just examined now in Scripture is rebuilding the church, getting out of the city, and so on. Didn't know where to go, except that I had that dream in 94 that says you need to build, prepare a place, and it's near here. Didn't say where. All right, here are these two maps. Middle East and Utah. Now, that's stupid in itself, isn't it? And the perception was that they were a mirror image of each other. Sea of Galilee, Bear Lake, Great Salt Lake, uh, Dead Sea, River Jordan, Jordan going into the uh, Great Salt Lake up here, Moab on one, Ammon and Jordan on the other. Uh, didn't see Jerusalem anywhere. And as we came on down, there was Mount, there was Zion, Petra, Jordan Rift Valley over here, Wasatch Range here, Sodom and Gomorrah here, Las Vegas and Los Angeles here, Gulf of Aqaba, Gulf of California. It's like they were the same, mirror image. So that began a research and study in itself. What's this... Utah and the Middle East deal. So we began researching Zion. 
Oh, I had a dream shortly after that that made us focus a little more on Zion. It was that there were a bunch of people in this dream moving down a mountain ridge, and there was Petra on the left and Zion on the right. And we had to make up our mind, were we going to Petra or Zion? Went down, went in that down into Zion. Then it showed a safe passage between the two in the dream. Like it was okay to give up the idea of Petra and, and start focusing on Zion, or that maybe God was going to use both places for some, to some degree. I don't know. Still don't know the total answer to that, perhaps, today. So we began studying Zion all through the Bible. Place of refuge, place where God's people would go, beautiful city, our beautiful mountain, joy of the whole land, and so on. We studied the Utah area and found out about the secret places of the stairs here and talked about Song of Songs where it says that Christ would come to meet his bride in the secret places of the stairs. And here we have geological formations called the Grand Staircase. So many, many dozens of things that lined up that way. Highway 9 going through Zion, which is, nine's a number for judgment. Many little things, but they add up. Dozens and dozens of things I don't have time to talk about today. But we did a thorough exhaustive study of Zion, of Utah, in this area, trying to figure out how they were mirror images of each other. And the, the vision had pretty well laid it out. You know, the things that you see over here are over here too. Then sometime later on, I had another dream. And this dream was set in kind of a broad, open valley, a very shallow valley, full of brush, and it was as if you're facing, I, from, from our perspective here today, to the south. And I was standing on the north side of the valley, and a young lady was walking toward me, and I motioned to come on over. And she got scared. Wouldn't do it. And then, that was the end of the dream. Then a few nights later, same setting, same young lady, only this time she was stripped naked. And this time she came running across the valley. And Marla and I then were there, and we put her in an old mobile home and started feeding her and covering her and getting her warm. End of the dream. Now, this is a strange concoction of different dreams, isn't it? Do they come from God? Do they tie in together in any way? Well, I stayed in CGG until the year 2000. John Reitenbaugh had known about all these dreams. He had known about all these studies and research that had gone on. In fact, he came out here in December of... Uh, 96, it was on Christmas Day, actually, that we did it. Uh, he and his son and John Wright and uh, John, uh, man, where'd my mind go? I miss it. John Reed uh, had visited Zion, and John said at the time, well, this may be the place, but it isn't the time. He said, no angel sat on my shoulder and told me that. But he had seen me start coming out here to look this area over. And we'd read those scriptures about uh, getting out of the city and going and dwelling in the wilderness and the desert. 
And, of course, the dreams that said the Utah area should be it, and Zion here uh, was a part of God's plan for the end time. So I came out and started looking and looking. He said, maybe we should move headquarters out west. So we came out, examined some areas around Colorado, some around Grand Junction and the little towns around it, found an office building. He flew his family out, wanted to look at the office building and see if they should move their headquarters out here. And then his family didn't like it and said, you can't grow anything out here, and uh, talked him out of it. So at one point, I think he was beginning to wonder about me a little bit in some ways. Uh, he says, well, maybe you should just move on out there and uh, set up an office and take care of Chicago and St. Louis and Dallas and Phoenix and, and so on, the western part. And uh, he, I said, well, you know, I, I was just thinking about this this morning that maybe I ought to move on out to Colorado and take care of Chicago and St. Louis and Dallas and Phoenix and so on. We came up with the same idea on the same day. He says, well, that's kind of what I was thinking, and if you came up with it today, he says, why don't you go ahead and do it? I said, yeah. Didn't say it that way, but uh, anyway, Marlon and I moved on out in 98 to Colorado and began to do what he had said to do. Then the calendar issue came up. I didn't want to leave CGG, but the calendar issue forced the matter. So in July of 2000, uh, I quit and was fired from there on the same day. I'm not sure who did what to who, but anyway, was terminated that day. And uh, I was not going to start another group. I didn't think, I thought there were enough. But I had set in my mind, well, in that case, I'm going to go out to Zion for the feast. I thought Marla probably would come along. I didn't know that she was convinced on that yet or not, but I didn't push her. <coughs> that was in my own mind. And then, lo and behold, people began calling up, people I'd never even heard of, and said, what are you going to do for the feast? Well, I'm going to go to Zion. Well, can I come? Well, yeah, I suppose so. And about 70 people showed up that fall. So we kind of organized into a little group and um, continued to research and teach and learn and so on. Came to the feast and in 2001, it was on my mind, well, I think I ought to move on out there from Colorado. So I packed up a bunch of stuff and came to the feast prepared to put it in a storage unit and look around for a place to live because I felt that it, we should be closer here. And other people began doing the same thing. We'd read the scriptures that said, leave the cities, get away from Babylon, gather yourselves before this happens, and build a village, villages ultimately. And God said he would protect it and be with it. So we just started doing it. We wound up in Canab and St. George and all around this area, renting houses and wondering what to do. Now it's interesting, somebody told me this today, I didn't ask, but the very first service we had for this organization, this group of people, was Feast of Trumpets 2000. And I don't remember much of what I said that day in that sermon, but somebody listened to it yesterday or last night, and sitting at lunch said, you know, I listened to that sermon last night, 
And you said in there that God would help us do what we needed to do and that he would send Osiris to help us at some point. I thought that was very interesting that I'd said that in the very first sermon we had in this organization. So, we started looking for land. John Reitenbaugh had told me that we came out here, and he knew I was out here looking for land while I was still with him. He says it must be either given to us or almost given to us if God is in it. So we looked and we looked. We moved to Canab. We looked at expensive land here and there that wasn't being given to us. We didn't have hardly any money to do anything with anyway. We were simply doing what we thought the Scripture told us to do, was move to this area out in the desert and prepare a place. So at the feast in 2002, somebody saw an ad about this piece of land we're on today, and I said, well, after the feast, I'll get a chance and go look at it. So I did. And some people saw it and said, Daryl will never agree to go here. You said that, Bill Durkee, I remember. <laughs> Daryl would never approve this. This won't work. So I came out. I looked around. I said, hmm, this might work. <laughs> but we didn't have much money either. And you know the story there. I, I, went to, I told you to pray about it. I went to talk to the guy, and I had things that I was going to try to negotiate that I thought would be almost giving it to us. And in every case, he offered it to us for less than I had been prepared to negotiate. And we got it in such a way that we only paid $5,000 down and we could all make a little payment each month and have control of it. It was almost given to us. And we built a village, didn't we? And there's something interesting about when that happened, too. I had been preaching from Zechariah 2, Daniel uh, 9, Jeremiah 25 and 29, that uh, after 70 years in captivity, God's people would be released from Babylon and be able to go and begin to build for themselves. And I applied it to the end-time church based on that study of Zechariah and Haggai. Now, we made the deal on this land in December of 2002. But by the time we got out here and kind of got it surveyed and began to put up the fences and get to the place that we could actually move on the land, it was January of 2003. And after the Sabbath, I think it was third week of January 2003, we divided up the land by lot and began moving on it in January of that year. Now you figure up 1933 to 2003 and tell me how many years that is. That's 70 years. After 70 years, God opened up a way that we could actually begin to move on to this land and develop it as a village, a village that I believe today is a part of Jerusalem villages without walls. 
almost exactly 70 years after Worldwide was formally put together, Radio Church of God at that time, formally put together. God released us from Babylon and gave us an opportunity to go out and do something on our own, apart from Babylon. December of 2006, I think it was the 27th actually as I think back, a man appeared, well, he'd come and visited with, uh, with Gordon a time or two looking for me and talking to Gordon. It's hard to get him to talk about historical things and biblical things, but he, he did with Gordon anyway. I say that tongue-in-cheek. But then about the 27th of December, somewhere along there, he showed up where I was and said, Are you the pastor? I say, Huh? I said, Yeah, I guess I'm the pastor. He has a speech impediment. And he said, Well, I want to talk to you. And then talk he did about historical things, and he said that this is the area that was the original promised land. This is where Jerusalem is. And I thought, well, hmm, that's interesting. He's saying that this place is a mirror image of the Middle East, but this was here first, and that became the image of this. Now, that's something I already knew. So when I knew that Zion was here, and this was the place God had chosen to bring his people out of the desert, and he said, Jerusalem is nearby, I thought, well, that, that could fit. Jerusalem wasn't on my maps, my vision. Everything else was, but not Jerusalem. Well, there is one over in the Middle East, but there wasn't one here you could see. It wasn't on the map. How could it have been on the map when it wasn't on the map? God had been preparing, I believe, someone for a long time. What time is it getting to be? I'm still okay for a little while. So anyway, he told me this whole story. And I thought, you know, there could be something to that. And he says, we can dig a hole and prove it. I said, well, I don't know whether you're right or whether you're wrong, but if I can dig a hole and prove it, let's get digging. So in January of 2007, we started digging. Now, we haven't finished that hole because we got sidetracked onto doing some other things that also, I think, tie in. Now, is this man, that Cyrus, go to Isaiah 44 and 45, says he'll be an unconverted man that doesn't know God, but thinks he does, and he will say, to Zion you shall be built, or to the temple you shall be built, no, he says to Jerusalem, your walls will be built, and to Zion, your foundation, or to the temple, your foundation will be laid. I'll get it right. And that's what it says right there at the end of Isaiah 44. And one day I was sitting in this man's office, and he says, you know, right here in Iron County, Jerusalem has to be built, and the foundation has to be laid to the temple right here. I'll take my jaw back up. He just said that right out of the blue. It says that a man named Cyrus would say that, Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 45, it says he'll be shown the hidden treasures, the secret riches of darkness. It says that God will open things up so that he can put it all together and the bars of brass and iron and so on will be opened so he can understand. He'll be shown those things. 
and that it will be done for God's people, Jacob, the church, that he wouldn't know God, but it would be shown, used to show the world from east to west that God is God. The rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, I think is what it said. I ask you, did those dreams and visions come from God, tacos, or Satan? To this point, we have been preparing a place near Beaver Dam, not very far away. We've got a village here, people who have been willing to come out of this world, leave Babylon, move out in the desert to prepare a place for God's people. The land was almost given to us. Has anything been done that those dreams said would be done? At some point I woke up and realized that this valley that we're living in is the one that was in that dream of the young lady that was scared to come standing right up here on this property. It's a little shallow valley. The bottom of the valley is right down here just to the south end of our property where we started drilling wells because that's where the water is the shallowest. And we didn't come here to put in mobile homes. We were talking about building earthen homes. We were talking about straw bale houses. And then somebody said, I need something to live in. There's a bunch of old homes over here. I'm going to go buy me a mobile home start fixing it up. We wound up to be a mobile home village here. But the churches poo-poo us, and the ones that did know about it were afraid to come out here. Didn't believe it. Is this nation in process of being stripped naked? Are these churches who have to have money to get on TV and radio and to print booklets and magazines, going to be stripped naked. It's in process. It's happening right before our very eyes today. Will a remnant gather? I believe it. Now let's understand the rest of the story. Because I've only talked history to this point. And it's history that is being borne out. The things that were shown are happening. And some of them have happened. Now, we only have one village here, but we've been saying all along there have to be villages. Now, this man who came and told me Jerusalem is nearby also said, I have thousands of acres, and I need people to live on these thousands of acres. He says this is going to be a place that God is going to gather people. And just recently he said, I've got a bunch of old mobile homes here. I need to set them all set up and cleaned up so people can come live in them. He said, do you have anybody that can come live on my land in these mobile homes? He is offering us thousands of acres on several different locations around Arizona and southern Utah free. He is giving us the use of thousands of acres. Where do you know of anyone? who has ever done that 
to a bunch of squatters living in old mobile homes somewhere and said, look, I have thousands of acres of land and I'd like for you squatters to come over and, and live on my land. You people that some people around this area call riffraff because you keep the commandments of God. And he stipulates that. These must be commandment keepers. I have thousands of free acres for you. Please move on them. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he was begging me to bring people to live on his land. He says, I'm going to lease all my ranches to you. There's a sign down there on one of them right now, two of them, that says, lease to Daryl Henson. Haven't paid him a dime. But he wanted our name on it. The land must be given to us or almost given to us. Those words echo in my mind. We had this piece almost given to us, and now we have thousands of acres literally being given to us for our use. may not get title, but what does that matter? But for us to use, free of charge. The man is being shown the hidden riches. We have them shown them. Now we're learning how to process them. Isaiah 44 and 45 are being fulfilled right before our very eyes by a man who is unconverted, who is helping the church. He believes the temple must be built and the Jerusalem must be built. And he knows where. And he owns the land that they must be built upon. I think God led him there in the first place. And he told us we need to build a big auditorium to teach people God's laws. And he says, that's not my job. He says, you probably ought to take charge of that. He told me that last year. All right. We have one village. We must have villages. Now the land has been provided for us to put the villages on. Opportunity is there. I believe that the wealth will also come with it to do the job. Because Isaiah 55 says, come and have milk and wine without money. People will not have to pay. They'll be able to be, live there freely, and they'll have their own vine and fig tree, as it says in Zechariah 3 and Micah 4. We are witnessing God doing what he showed need to be done. It was in the Bible all along. The whole story is in the Bible, written out. Nobody understood it. All God did with those dreams, I believe, was open my mind to understand his scriptures. That was the purpose of them. It wasn't because I was great. It was because he wanted me to be part of the preparation crew, and he wanted you to come help me. And now we're going to have a lot of people strip naked, go to Isaiah 32, see if this fits the dream. Isaiah 32. And I'll start in verse 9. Rise up, you women that are at ease. Women means churches and biblical symbolism. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. Give ear to my speech. I was just as careless as any of them, brethren, until God showed me and got my nose in the book. Many days and years shall you be troubled. My margin says days above a year shall you be troubled. When did this housing bubble burst? beginning toward the end of last year, first part of this year. 
and it's continuing, it's getting worse, and now fuel's going up and the dollar's going down and hot food's going up in price and everything's getting really rocky looking in this country and in the world today, isn't it? Days above a year shall you be troubled, you careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Gathering's not coming yet, is it? God does say there's a financial crash coming in Zephaniah 1. It says in Zephaniah 2, come out before it happens. Some may, some may not. Tremble, you women that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you, make you bare. Gird sackcloth upon your loins. They shall lament for the breasts, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for prosperity, in other words. And prosperity is right now being removed from us. Upon the land of my people shall come thorns and briars. Can't eat those, can you? Yes, upon all the houses of joy, or churches in the joyous city. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and towers shall be for dens, and forever a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. Cities are going to be desolate, empty. So you'll build houses and not dwell in them, not inhabit them, Zephaniah 1. All these McMansions we've built are now being foreclosed, and it's only just beginning to be started. Verse 15, these conditions will continue until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high and the wilderness be a fruitful field. Isaiah 29 talks about Lebanon being a fruitful field and counted as a forest and says that the things that are uncovered in Lebanon will make people begin to understand true doctrine and quit murmuring and understand. And I think some of the things that we're uncovering right now are going to do just that. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, insurance forever. My people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, in sure dwelling places and in quiet resting places. When it shall hail, so this is premillennium, no hail then, when it shall hail, coming down on the forest and the city shall be low in a low place. So it's a time when God's people are going to be given peace, but there's still going to be hail in the cities. Hail's rock, or big balls of ice falling on your head. God has gotten us out of the way. The churches, when this financial crash occurs, are going to be stripped naked. And then they will lose their fear of those idiots in the desert because God is going to begin to show by the things he does here that he is working here. And we will have to build a temple. That Cyrus of Isaiah 44 and 45 is not converted, so he's not involved in building the spiritual temple. Zerubbabel is, Zechariah 4, one of the two witnesses. He laid the foundation. He will complete it. So we have to build a spiritual temple under Zerubbabel, and we also have to build a physical temple. And the original Cyrus, out of his treasury, gave the money, the wages, everything that was needed to build that temple in Ezra and Nehemiah and to build the wall of Jerusalem later on. Two different kings, but they did the job. I believe it's going to happen again. It's going to happen just like that. So, it isn't the time now for us to get bored, to go back to sleep. It isn't time for us 
to lose our first love, it's time for us to wake up and realize the work of God is not finished. That we have been a part and parcel with a work that he is doing in preparation for a bigger work that is to come. Not one village, but now several villages, maybe seven total would be my guess. We're here as a base. We're here as a preparatory. We're here to help them as they come out, having been stripped naked and running for their lives. Some may come ahead of the fall. But if you read Isaiah 32 and you listen to the dream which fits this perfectly, I think they're going to get stripped in this financial debacle that is coming and then they will come. And they'll be in need. They'll be hungry. They'll be thirsty. They'll be desperate. They'll help us build the temple. They'll help us build Jerusalem. And when the order to give Jerusalem is given, there'll be 69 and a half weeks to get it built before the abomination is set up, is set up and we will need to flee to Zion for our very lives then we'll begin the preaching of the gospel as a witness against the world by the two witnesses. But they will use this, the original Jerusalem, the original Zion, the original promised land as their base. And there will be villages built here that will be protected by God. And people will live peaceably and have plenty and prosperity. And these villages can be used as an example of what happens when you obey God. But they will be destroyed because these constitute Jerusalem without walls when the abomination is set up and we must flee to Zion. And from there, in Zion, will be the base of the two witnesses go out and preach to the world. We're halfway there, brethren. God's brought us out. He's given us land. And the nation is now being stripped as the church was stripped. And the churches will be physically stripped now, just like they were spiritually stripped, just according to that story we saw in the Minor Prophet series. We're a lot further along the path now. And it isn't just talk and research, and this might happen someday. We have a village. We have been given land to put more on. All we lack now is the people and the wealth to do it, and both of those will be coming shortly. I believe that because it's in the Word of God. And just as much as this has happened, that will happen. Because this, that we are experiencing and have done, is what was revealed that must be done. And I think that the fruits of what we have accomplished here show that God is with us. That's why he revealed the name Emmanuel to us. God with us. Now, I'm out of time, almost. I think I'm going to finish this anyway. I think I can do it fairly quickly. But I think it's important that we understand it. Gordon was talking yesterday from Ezekiel 16, and he talked from it again today. But there was something there that caught my eye because it kind of fit with what I was thinking. Uh, here is in Ezekiel 16. 
where is it, down about verse 19, I think. Oh, wait a minute. I wrote it down here, like he was this morning. Where did I put that? Oh, 48. Okay. Ezekiel 16, 48. As I live, says the eternal God, Sodom, your sister, has not done, she nor her daughters, as you have done, you and your daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. And then he goes to list their iniquity. Now, we think of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as homosexuality and sodomy, don't we? But as he said, that was only the symptom. Homosexuality is a a symptom of something far greater, a bigger sin. Now, it's a dastardly thing, but it is only a symptom as he said. Let's see, define here, the sin of Sodom. Pride. God hates pride. He hates the proud. He resists the proud. Do you know what you're showing? Pride is a sin, okay? What is a symptom of pride? There are lots, but... A simple symptom of pride is hurt feelings. When we get our feelings hurt, that's hurting our pride. Because our feelings are hurt because we think somebody's putting us down, dissing us, looking down upon us, saying something bad about us, and that hurts our feelings, feelings of pride. Now, if we really realized and esteemed others higher than ourselves, if we really felt that other people's opinions were good and that we aren't worth much, why would our feelings be hurt? Hurt feelings are just a symptom of a bigger underlying sin, and that is pride. So if you want to know if you have any pride left, ask yourself how often your feelings get hurt. We all have pride left, don't we? You bet we do. But pride is the big sin. Hurt feelings are just a symptom. Now, homosexuality is a great sin, but it is a symptom of what? Self-love. Self-love. Putting the self and one's desires ahead of others, their feelings, their needs, and ahead of God and his way of life. Any sin is self-love, selfishness. So what was their sin? Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. They had more time to kill, and they got bored, and they tried to find ways to ease their boredom. So they went into sin, and it got worse and worse. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. In other words, they were only interested in taking care of the self. I want to entertain me. I want to be happy. I want to have everything I want to have. And they didn't pay attention to others. They did not take care of the poor and needy. Now, what is the greatest thing there is? 1 Corinthians 13. Love of others. Love is unselfish. 
Love is kind, love is giving, love is gentle, love is serving. That's what God is. God is love. There's nothing greater than love. You can have faith and hope and love, and the greatest of these three is love. So that is the greatest attribute that any human being can have is concern, help, love for others and for God. So then what is the greatest sin? There is. Unlove. Not loving. Loving self. Putting self ahead of others. If the greatest thing is loving others, the worst thing is not loving others. It's just the exact opposite. Now, Dennis Deal wrote an article in the latest journal I read the other night. It was kind of an interesting article. He has a, a wry sense of humor about him, but he was talking about all the friends we've had in the church. And when you come into Worldwide, or did years ago, and everybody was your friends. We agreed on things, so we loved each other and we were all friends. And then it broke up, and then if they were in this group and you were in this group, you weren't friends anymore. You might not even speak. You went around town. It was fair weather friends. And there are people right now in organizations of the Church of God that won't speak to each other, and they used to hug each other. We have people who have left here that we hugged and they were part of us. And then we left, they're not part of us anymore, and some of us wouldn't hug them if we saw them. I'll bet you anything. Would feel funny. They're not with us anymore. Were we really friends? This is an interesting article. Friends disappear. Different doctrine, different focus, different group, and suddenly they're not friends anymore. Were they ever really friends? Or did we just have a camaraderie and a hug because we agreed on a few things? All right. These people that are about to be stripped naked may not at this point agree with us on everything, but they're going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty, they're going to be destitute, they're going to be hurting. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. I want uh, Matthew 25. We'll wrap this up. Matthew 25, 34. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, uh, 25, 34, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we you hungry or thirsty, or, and when saw we you a stranger, or, and took you in, or naked, and clothed you? Or when saw we you sick or in prison, and came to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brothers, you have done it to me. Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You took me not in, naked, and you clothed me not, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. 
Then shall they also answer and say, When did we see you like this? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. We're poised to have people coming to us who are hungry, thirsty, and naked. Will they be our friends? Will we be friends to them? Are we preparing our hearts, minds, and attitudes to help God's people when they come out of the terrible thing that they are about to go through? James 2. We're not out here, brethren, just to save ourselves. We're out here to do a work that is to help prepare the end-time work for God's witnesses, and we're here to take those people in when they come out. Matthew, uh, James 2, here I want verse 16. And one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What does it profit? These people are going to need. And we tell them, be warmed and filled, go on your way. We are in trouble deeply with God. Now what is that indictment in Ezekiel 16, 48 and 49? You didn't take care of the oppressed. Let's tie with that Malachi 3 now. Malachi 3. Here it's talking to the end time church again. And here I want verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me. God is very concerned for those who are going to have need. And he indicts and judges those who will not take care of people. Psalm 102, we sang today, where it talks about how he will help the destitute. It is his mind to love, to help the poor, the destitute, those in need. He has not called us here for personal salvation. He has called us here to come out of this world to prepare a place for people to come when this world flies apart. And we are to be here prepared in attitude to do this very thing. And he is going to punish Israel because they have been self-loving and unloving, non-loving. The greatest thing is to truly love, to care for, and to help. We need to be preparing our minds through the Spirit of God to have the fruit of the Spirit. The love, the patience, the peace, the joy the serving, the giving, the sharing with those who have need in this world. I'm going to read one more scripture in Revelation 2. I read through the seven churches, and I'm not trying to identify anybody or any group as one of them, but some things seem to fit this little group pretty well here in Revelation 2. And it says that before Joshua there in Zechariah 3, that one stone will have seven eyes. So when Joshua and Zerubbabel show up, 
to the place it is prepared, uh, they will have the attention and the concern for all seven churches. They'll feed oil to all seven out of the lamps, the things of God. So all seven churches will be around. But what is written to Ephesus here kind of caught my eye. I don't know that we're Ephesus, and I'm not saying that, but a lot of what it reads here sounds like this group more than some of the other things that are said about some of the others. These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, and the two witnesses will be involved with the seven golden candlesticks, Zechariah 4. I know your works and your labor and your patience. I look at you, you've come out here, you've worked, you've labored, you've been patient, you've seen God a little at a time begin to answer and fulfill some of the promises he made, and now it's opening up more with mines and with land, preparing for the next step, the next phase. And how you cannot bear them which are evil. We talk about Babylon and the world around us and how evil it is. And we can't stand it. And yet, at the same time, we have trouble withdrawing from it. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. We've looked at those who claim to be apostles and leading evangelists and the leader and all this, and we've seen that they don't understand what God is doing and that they're liars. They're not what they say they are. And you have borne and have patience, and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. That fits this group pretty well, in my assessment at least. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen and repent and do the first works. We've been talking, if they even come out in sermonettes and sermons a little in the last two days, how we're getting older, we're getting feeble, we're getting more sick, we're getting more afflicted, we're having more problems. We've built this village and now suddenly it looks like land is opening up, the money will be there, the people will come, and we've got more villages to build and we're old and tired and sick. How are we going to do this? Maybe we've lost a little bit of our first love. Maybe we've lost our momentum. Maybe we've lost our desire. Maybe we don't have enough of the love of God to think about and grasp that these people are going to be in desperate straits when they come here. And that we need to be there prepared and ready to help them, to feed them to give them drink, to give them clothes, to give them a warm place to lay down, a safe, peaceable place from the New World Order and the armies, where God will provide a covert from the heat and a wall of defense around. We know these things are going to happen. We've seen some of them happen already. And if God has done some, he will finish the job. Will we finish the job? Yes, we've worked. We have been patient. We've labored. Now is not the time to give up that love because the need is going to be great. 
And if you believe all these scriptures that we've read over the last 12 years, you know those people are going to be coming soon. And you know that this crash we see coming around us is prophesied in Zephaniah 1. And these people will be desperate. Do we love ourselves? Are we here for personal salvation? Or are we here for a bigger picture, a bigger job? To help fulfill the purposes of God and the will of God in this end time. To prepare a place as a base for his witness to go out against the world. And to use us and those who are coming to us as an example and as a light on a hill in Zion to the rest of the world that God is God. And that if you obey God, you will live in peace and happiness and prosperity forevermore and not see physical death, but be changed into immortal beings. That is the will of God. That is the purpose of God. And this job that I have described today, I believe, is a job, a specific job, that God has given to an end-time people. We are here for the good of his remnant to help them, and we're here for the good of the world. And if we see through and have that love, that first love, that eagerness to serve, to give, to help, then God will make us part of the bride of Christ, and we will serve and give and help the whole world, not just a small remnant people. We're being trained to fulfill the purpose of Emmanuel the King that his father gave him so that none should die and not perish but have everlasting life. Pray that God give us the Spirit, his Spirit, and his love to do the job that is ahead of us. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be difficult. It has been so far. But if you've been patient and you've worked, you can be patient and you can work some more. And God will give us the help. He'll give us the strength. And he'll give us the help to build his temple and to build Jerusalem and to stand against this world.